Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate, centrists, and independents. This week, we're going to be continuing my trend of flirting with cancellation as I try to navigate one of the most complex issues in the news today, Israel and Palestine. Today, we're going to take a wild ride through history. We're going to explore the seeds of this conflict, why Britain might be the worst, and the long shadow of the War of 1967, a shadow that we're all still living in today. Over the course of the next two episodes, we're going to be untangling the origins of a conflict that has shaped geopolitics for decades and try to unearth the context that's necessary to process what's happening in the news today and what might be on the horizon in the future. I'm going to try to keep it punchy. There will be many clips, many pop culture references, and as many jokes as I can pull off without feeling seriously tone deaf. So without any further ado, I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. Would it surprise you to know that the idea of a nation or nationalism is really only about 200 years old? It's actually younger than the United States. If you and I got into a time machine right now and traveled back in time to witness the breakout of nations and nationalism, we would arrive at a moment in time that was dominated by one of history's greatest divas, Napoleon. Napoleon rose to power as a champion of the ideas of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity. He justified expanding the French Empire and the military campaigns that such ambition would require on the idea that France had the right, nay, the responsibility, to spread these ideas throughout Europe. And Napoleon believed that the best way to spread an idea is with force. I found the crown of France in the gutter and placed it atop my own head. Napoleon expands his empire all across Europe and into the Middle East. And in doing so, he's actually creating this idea of the French nation. Napoleon unites his people around this idea of what it means to be French, the French identity, something that is so great, it's got to get bigger. It deserves to get bigger. It has to spread. Other people need to witness this incredible French identity, these values that it's built upon. We've done something great. The people got to know. So Napoleon takes that new shared identity and he marches it straight into war. And in doing so, he further unites his people around a shared experience, a shared definition of an enemy. Now Napoleon has helped his people to define who they are and who they're not. And he's wrapped all of that up with a bow of shared experience. So using that example, what is a nation? In technical terms, a nation is a group of people with a common language, culture, history, and destiny. Nationalism is the idea that a nation should have the right to govern itself and determine its future. Nationalism is fascinating to me because it binds people together in ways that aren't genetic, they're not biological, they're not even based on a personal connection that you have with that person. Nationalism is basically this imaginary relationship that exists between you and everybody else that you perceive to be like you. And that relationship fosters a sense of unity and loyalty that otherwise would not exist. Nationalism isn't just a shared government or a shared economy. It's a shared identity, a shared culture, and an investment in a shared future. So let's get back to Napoleon. 
Napoleon conquered numerous people and territories throughout Europe, and every new place that he conquered became an extension of the French central government, i.e. an extension of his power. And he rules these territories through military occupation. But the funny thing about nationalism is everywhere that Napoleon occupies becomes more nationalist. And it actually prompts nationalist uprisings against Napoleon's nationalist empire. It would be like if every day that you went to school, a bully came up to you and kicked your ass. But slowly these beatings started to give you like a working knowledge of combat. And you start to kind of learn what to do in a fight. And eventually that knowledge is what you use to beat up that bully. It's weird. It's a weird phenomenon. But it makes sense, right? Because Napoleon comes into these areas with this French culture, this French identity, this French military. And it becomes easier for the people he's occupying to see the differences between him and his forces and them. And in seeing what you're not, you start to understand what you are. And since Napoleon is conquering so much of Europe, these nationalist ideas start to spread throughout the continent. It sets in like a fever. All across the world, nationalist ideas start to take hold and people start dreaming of their shared destiny and looking more critically at those things that are standing in the way. For many people, one of the things standing in the way was the Ottoman Empire, which, prior to World War I, covered 2.2 million square miles. The Ottomans ruled over many distinct populations, Sunni and Shia Muslims, Orthodox and Catholic Christians, Jews, Greeks, Armenians, Arabs, and Kurds. The Ottomans were considered to be quite tolerant, but there's a lot of daylight between tolerating something and valuing it. So while they don't force their beliefs and their religion on the people that they occupy, they do hold these groups to be separate and somewhat inferior which leads to a slow and steady resentment forming in the populations that they rule. In this episode, we're going to focus more on the Arabs, the people living in much of what we consider today to be the Middle East, including, most importantly, the region of Palestine. The Ottomans ruled over these lands for 400 years, but when the nationalist fever starts to take hold, the Arabs start to yearn for an independent Arab state. And they're not the only ones. During this period, everybody wants a country. And that includes the Jewish people. Because it's around this time that the Zionist movement is born. If you're not familiar, Zionism is the movement for self-determination and statehood for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland, what we consider today to be Israel. So it's born during this nationalist fervor. While this is all going on, the major player in global politics is the British Empire. Britain is in its prime. The British Empire is at the height of its power. They control a quarter of the Earth's land surface. That's a lot of people and a lot of territory. But when World War I breaks out, Britain finds itself in a conflict with another major empire, the Ottomans. Now, Britain is the biggest empire in history. Truly, the biggest empire ever. And when you get that big, it really changes your state of mind. Your mindset pretty much has to be always be conquering, right? I mean, you don't get that much land by accident. So as soon as World War I breaks out, Britain assumes it's going to win, and it starts to think about what it wants to do with all that new land that it's about to get. Because, as we've discussed, the Ottoman Empire's massive, right? 2.2 million square miles. And Britain's like, One way or another, I'm gonna win ya. I'm gonna get you, get you, get you, get you. During the war, Britain understands 
that in order to defeat the Central Powers, it's going to have to topple the Ottoman Empire. And it thinks that an easy way to do that is to get an uprising against the empire by those that it rules. So a representative of the British government reaches out to Sharif Hussein of Mecca, and he expresses that the British government could support Arab independence and the idea of self-governance in the Middle East if the Sharif of Mecca would just lead the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. You scratch my back, I give you your own country. And Sharif Hussein agrees. But the problem is that these letters and correspondence don't equate to a formal agreement between the British Empire and the Sharif of Mecca. Not only that, but the territorial boundaries that they negotiate in these letters is never clearly defined. If you read the correspondence, it seems like each side has a different idea of what territory is being promised. Another thing that's important to note here is that Palestine is never directly mentioned in the letters. It's included in a map of territories that are proposed by Hussein, but Britain accepts this map saying that it's subject to modification. It's not finalized. Which, you know, is vague as hell, and I'm sure you can guess that it's going to create a problem, because Sharif Hussein does lead the Arab revolt, and it does become one of the primary factors that leads to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So he did his part. And you know he's going to come looking for Britain to do theirs. And there's another problem. Sharif Hussein is not the only person that Britain has promised this land to. They also promised it to the Jewish people. Because around this time, Zionist leaders were advocating for the creation of a Jewish homeland. And the British government believed that endorsing a Jewish homeland in Palestine would help garner support from the Jewish communities in the United States and Russia. That would be support that they need to win the war. So they were like, sure, babe, you can have whatever you want. So basically, we have Britain out here just promising anybody anything to get their support for the war effort. And they issue the Balfour Declaration that formally endorses creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, a territory that was currently part of the Ottoman Empire, where Jews only make up 3% of the population. Oh, and also, it does not belong to Britain. The Balfour Declaration ends up getting published in the newspaper, and the Christians and Muslims living in the Palestinian territory are pissed. They perceive the declaration as being made A, by a European power, B, about a non-European territory, and C, in a flat disregard of both the presence and wishes of the native majority residents in the territory. Not to mention that it takes the form of a promise about the same territory to another foreign group. Not great, right? But it's worse, actually. <laughs> we have another problem. Britain has actually already promised the land to another party. Itself. Two years before World War I was even over, France and Britain were already working on their vision boards for a post-war world. They got together and divided up the Middle East between the two of them. And then they signed a legit secret treaty ratified by their parliaments and didn't tell anyone. So Britain has now promised a piece of the Ottoman Empire that they do not have any power over to three different groups, including themselves, which, you know, might be a problem. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire and the Central Powers collapse. So the League of Nations, basically the first draft of what would become the UN, establishes a mandate system. Think of it like a big brother, big sister, except with countries. The goal of the system was that the Allied powers would each take responsibility for some of these regions and help guide the transition towards independence and self-governance, while maintaining international supervision, which they thought was essential to avoid the exploitation and colonization that had dominated these regions in the past. 
But this is where Britain's many promises sort of come to a head, because Britain and France always be scheming, right? So when the League of Nations gathers up and they're like, hmm, how are we going to divide up these territories? Britain is like, I've got an idea. That's how British people talk, by the way. This is, you know, um, right off the dome, just coming to me here now spontaneously. What if we use this map that France and I just so happen to have on hand? And that's the map that they drew up with their secret treaty, right? So they show this map to everybody and they're like, wow, I guess, okay, yeah, we can go with that. It's weird that you're this prepared, but sure. And what would you know, Britain ends up with all of the territory in the Middle East that it had negotiated with France, which includes the Palestinian region. Everything is going according to plan, except now all of those people that Britain made promises to want to collect. And Britain has to decide if they're going to give a home to the Jewish people, like they promised with the Balfour Declaration, or if they'll make good on their promise to support an independent Arab state, or keep it for itself. First, they don't designate any land specifically to the Jewish people. Instead, they come up with very favorable immigration policies for Jews that want to migrate to Israel, making it really easy for them to come over. And they do, particularly from Eastern Europe, because the Jews that are living in those areas are under constant threat. Civil war in Russia after World War I led to the death of at least 100,000 Jews, mainly in what is now Ukraine, and the displacement of another 600,000. And then there's the elephant in the room. The Nazis are rising to power and their reign of terror begins. So a lot of these global events are pushing Eastern European Jews towards Palestine, something that Britain is encouraging because it wants to kind of make good on its word. Now, if you remember from when we talked earlier, when Palestine was under Ottoman rule, the Jewish people made up about 3% of its population. But by 1947, they make up 30%. So we see this massive influx of an immigrant population into the Palestinian region. And Palestinian Arabs are kind of pissed about this. They didn't agree to a large influx of Jewish people. And they really don't appreciate that the population's coming in whether they want it or not. So they're feeling like they've been robbed of a certain basic autonomy and self-determination that they thought was owed to them after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So, if you've ever been concerned about the immigration system in the United States, or if you've ever seen those videos from the southern border that just showed disorder and chaos and it bothers you, then you can understand where the Palestinian Arabs are coming from when this starts to happen. Britain does try to keep its word to Sharif Hussein. While they end up getting into a pretty significant disagreement about the Palestinian region, Britain does deliver Transjordan, Iraq, and Hejaz to Sharif Hussein's sons. Britain literally delivers them a kingdom and makes kings out of his family. But you kind of have to weigh that against the fact that they do decide to keep Palestine for themselves. And they rule over it through a mandate system. With the end goal of leading them towards self-determination. Britain rules over the Palestinian region for 25 years, from 1922 to 1947, in an era that will become known as Mandatory Palestine. Now, by 1947, all of the other Middle Eastern countries that were under the League of Nations mandate system had transitioned to self-governance. Palestine was the only exception. And the Arabs that were living in that area were really frustrated. They had wanted an independent Arab state since before World War I, and now we've been through two world wars and they still don't have one. They're frustrated with British policies that they think favor Jewish immigration over Arab rights. And they get so frustrated that they decide to lead an armed revolt against the British. 
And any students of history that might be listening know that the British hate an armed revolt. So they shut it down, and they shut it down hard. So hard, in fact, that they kind of take on some white guilt and try to backtrack. They try to implement various formulas to bring independence to the region and try to help push them towards self-determination. And they try to resolve the escalating tensions between the Jewish people and the Arabs that are living in this region. They consider a partition scheme, a formula for provincial autonomy, and a unified independent Palestine, but they're all abandoned. And in 1947, Britain is tired and frustrated. A single mom who works two jobs, who loves her kids and never stops, with gentle hands and the heart of a fighter, I'm a survivor. So they basically go to the United Nations and they're like, hey, hi. I know that I schemed my way into getting this country, but it sucks. They hate us. And I'd really like to give it back. And the UN is like, what do you mean? You literally schemed your way into having these lands, and now you're saying you don't want them? And then Britain is like, yeah. So, in 1947, the UN starts to consider what should be done with the region of Palestine. The Jewish delegation negotiated with the UN Committee on Palestine during the partitioning process, but the Palestinian Arab leadership boycotted it. They refused to negotiate, so when the partition plan was released, the Jewish delegation accepted it, but the Palestinian Arabs did not. 62% of the land went to the Jewish state, even though the Palestinian Arabs had doubled the population. The Arabs thought it was Zionist and rejected it. They also indicated that they were unwilling to accept any form of territorial division because they thought that it violated the principles of self-determination in the UN Charter, which granted people the right to decide their own destiny. Since this is a podcast and you can't see the partition map, I'm going to try and paint you a verbal picture of how fucked up and destined to fail the partition plan map is, okay? Imagine you really want a Twinkie. Like, more than anything, you want this Twinkie. You're basically Woody Harrelson in Zombieland for this Twinkie. Where are you, you spongy yellow delicious bastards? Where are you? And this person you've never met just appears, real creepy-like, and they present you with a Twinkie. And this Twinkie has a little bit of filling on one side and then in the middle, as most Twinkies do. And you're like, oh my god, yes, I got the Twinkie. Not just any box of Twinkies. The last box of Twinkies that anyone will enjoy in the whole universe. And they say, you can have the Twinkie, but you have to share it with your mortal enemy. And you're sketched out by that, but you really want that Twinkie. So you agree. And you go to cut that Twinkie in half, and the Twinkie keeper is like, no, no, no. You get the cream filling in the middle, and the frosting on one side, and your mortal enemy gets the cake around the cream filling and the icing. So go ahead and separate it, but don't destroy the Twinkie in the process. Do you think you can maybe just pick out the buckshot, just kind of eat around it? That is basically the UN partition map. They give Palestine the cream filling inside the Twinkie and the frosting on the outer edge, and they give Israel everything around it. Also, making Jerusalem an international city, what the fuck is that shit? Can you think of another city that doesn't belong to a government? Vatican City, that is literally the only other example I can think of, and only 750 people live there. At the time, Jerusalem had 150,000 people. Anyway, 
When Britain leaves, the Jewish people issue the Israeli Declaration of Independence and establish Israel as a nation, claiming the lands that are designated to them by the UN Partition Plan. This enrages the Palestinian Arabs that are living in the region, and they declare war on Israel right away. It was the rising tension in Palestine that held world attention. Partition had brought a new flare-up in the strife between Arab and Jew. Politically, the conflict appeared to be settled. In actual fact, it had only just begun. The United Nations Special Committee had advocated separate Jewish and Arab states as the uneasy compromise. The plan was accepted by 33 votes to 13. Alexander Kadagan, Britain's representative, abstained. First reaction from the Jews was one of joy. Arab opposition to the partition scheme has been violent. The call for a holy war against the Jews went out from Cairo. And it doesn't take long for that civil war to evolve into a conflict between Israel and the Arab League, which is basically all of the countries that surround Israel. So over the next few days, Egypt, Iraq, Transjordan, and Syria invade the region of Palestine and try to fight the Israelis. They're supported also by the Arab Liberation Army and corps of volunteers from Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and Yemen. The Arab armies launch a simultaneous offensive on all fronts, all sides. Egyptian forces invade from the south, Jordanian and Iraqi forces from the east, and Syrian forces invade from the north. The Israeli forces are at a serious disadvantage here. They have a maximum of 30,000 troops when war initially breaks out. And just consider that those are refugees and Holocaust survivors. So it's not like they're in fight and shape. And the Arab nations that attack them have double that. Not to mention, all of a sudden, Britain can't come to the phone. Nor can any other ally of Israel, which includes the United States, who supported Israel's right to exist in the UN partition plan. So Israel's on their own. Under these circumstances, Israel's victory is actually pretty remarkable. The war lasted 10 months and ended with Israel's victory. And the territory known as Palestine was divided into three parts. The State of Israel, the West Bank, which was controlled by Jordan, and the Gaza Strip, which was controlled by Egypt. The War of 1948 leads to what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba. Arab civilians that had been living in the Palestinian region either fled the war or the Israelis forced them out, and in total, 750,000 Palestinians are displaced. 900,000 Jews are also displaced from the Arab nations that surround Israel. Many of them do resettle in Israel, but this displacement cuts both ways. Neither side can claim that those numbers are all forced expulsions, as many activists on both sides will say. The truth, unfortunately, is a sad combination of things. On the Palestinian side, many Arabs fled voluntarily out of fear of the Jews and the fate that might await them if they stayed. Many Palestinians were advised or ordered to leave by their fellow Arabs. A lot of villages were ordered to send their women, children, and elderly people away in order to keep them safe. Some villages were ordered to evacuate in their entirety for their safety. And, truly, many were forcibly evicted by the Jewish military. And the Jews do commit atrocities against the Arabs during this period. Rape is not uncommon. Pillage is expected. Many POWs were executed. And some villages were massacred. The most notable was in Deir Yassin, where 110 Arabs were killed, half of them being women and children. On the Jewish side, throughout 1947 and 1948, Jews in Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Libya, Morocco, Syria, and Yemen were persecuted. 
Their property and belongings were confiscated. They're subject to severe anti-Jewish riots instigated by the government. In Iraq, Zionism is a capital crime. In Syria, anti-Jewish pogroms erupt in Aleppo and the government freezes all Jewish bank accounts. In Egypt, bombs are detonated in the Jewish quarter, killing dozens. In Algeria, anti-Jewish decrees were swiftly instituted. And in Yemen, bloody pogroms led to the death of nearly 100 Jews. Ultimately, close to 900,000 Jews become refugees. To date, more than 100 UN resolutions have been passed referring explicitly to the fate of these Palestinian refugees, but not a single one has specifically addressed the Jewish refugees created in the same period of time. Not only that, but the Jewish people leave behind roughly $350 million in assets. Add that to the $100 million in assets that are lost by the Palestinian refugees, and the total is $450 million, which would be $5.7 billion today. Now, I'm not trying to get into like a tit-for-tat contest between which group of people suffered more. I'm actually trying to do the opposite. Both of these groups are displaced after the War of 1948. Both groups of people surrender their assets, their homes, and will never return to those places. I give you these numbers so that you understand that this is a brutal conflict between two ethnic groups that both have equal right to this land, and that's what makes this so complicated. So let's fast forward to 1967. Tensions between Egypt and Israel have been escalating, and Israel preemptively attacks Egyptian and Syrian air forces, starting something that is known as the Six-Day War. The victory for Israel is very decisive. War reaches its conclusion in six days, and by that time, Israel is within 30 miles of Damascus, the capital of Syria. That's how far into that country it pushed. Not only that, but its ground forces are within striking distance of Cairo. As a result of this conflict, Israel absorbs a lot of land, increasing it to four times its size prior to. They absorb the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, as well as the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip from Egypt. After the war, two of the least helpful parties in this entire situation come back into play. Britain, you know, the problem, goes to the United Nations and sponsors Resolution 242, and the UN passes it. Now, Resolution 242 is good in theory, because it ties the main thing that the Soviets and the Arabs wanted, which is the Israeli withdrawal from occupied territories, to the main thing that Israel and the United States wanted, which was recognition of Israel and its right to exist from its neighbors. It also calls for a just settlement of the refugee problem, which refers to the displaced Palestinian Arabs. So what's the hang-up? If all the requirements of Resolution 242 were fulfilled, the Arab-Israeli conflict would have been settled. Hindsight being 2020, when we look back at Resolution 242, all it was was a roadmap to limbo. None of the things that it advocated for happened. The hang-up is that the language of the resolution is vague enough for each party to see what it wants out of it and basically interpret whatever they don't like out of existence. So from the Israeli perspective, Resolution 242 means that the neighboring countries have to acknowledge their right to exist and engage in bilateral talks to produce a secure border. Basically, Israel wants its neighbors to say that it has a right to be a country and then agree to a treaty that can help them make that country safe. 
But the only country that does that is Egypt. And Israel, to their credit, does give them their land back once it's formally recognized. And many people believe that if Syria and Jordan had come to the table, Israel would have given their land back too. But that doesn't happen. They don't come to the table. Furthermore, Israeli officials believe that the resolution doesn't require them to withdraw from all of the territories or even from the territories captured in 1967. It argues that the language was left intentionally vague to allow Israel to fulfill its obligation by surrendering from some but not all of its territory. Which sounds like a pretty convenient interpretation, but U.S. officials that worked on the resolution at the time side with Israel on this, agreeing that the language was vague on purpose. And they give up the Sinai Peninsula, which represents more than 90% of the acreage that they occupied during the war. So from their perspective, they've already met their obligation to return some of the territory because they've returned 90% of it. So they think that they are in compliance with Resolution 242. Therefore, they think that the Palestinian Arabs are not because they're refusing to give peace. Now, the Palestinian side of things is also pretty compelling, in my opinion. Since Palestine is not a country, Palestinians have no voice in the UN. Therefore, they are outraged by Resolution 242 for the simple fact that it exists and that they were not consulted. They had no representation. They had to rely on the British, <laughs> who famously doesn't do a good job at advocating for their interests. Additionally, Resolution 242 never mentions the Palestinians by name. It just refers to a, quote, just settlement for the refugee problem. End quote. So not only are they just being referred to as a problem, but the resolution also provides no guidance on what a just settlement would even look like. They also don't like that it calls on Middle Eastern states to recognize each other's sovereignty. But since Palestine is not a state, they believe that it's encouraging everyone to acknowledge Israel's sovereignty, but denying Palestinians the same. Since they're not a state, no one has to recognize them. Palestinians do acknowledge that nothing in the language of the resolution suggested the creation of a Palestinian state, but they contend that the resolution requires Israel to withdraw from all of the territory that it occupied in 1967, which would lead to the creation of a Palestinian state, in theory. After the Six-Day War, everything changes. The defeat is devastating for the Arab population, and it marks the death of Arab nationalism. In fact, many Arab intellectuals believe it actually marks the beginning of the end for Arab culture. It transforms Israel into a monument for their inadequacy and failure. For the first time, Arab leaders start to face and eventually accept the reality that they would never liberate all of Palestine. Not only that, but they will eventually accept Israel's control of the 78% of mandatory Palestine that they held prior to the War of 1967 thus relinquishing their claim to the Arab state promised in the UN partition plan. And the Palestinians stood no chance of gaining anything more than the remaining 22%, which is Gaza and the West Bank. Not only that, but the Arab nations will eventually accept Israel's control of the 78% of mandatory Palestine that Israel held prior to the War of 1967 which leaves the Palestinians with little to no chance of gaining anything more than the remaining 22%, which is roughly Gaza and the West Bank. This fundamentally alters the dynamic within this conflict because in the beginning, when the UN partitioned the Palestinian region, Arab leaders thought that the Palestinian lands and territories belonged to the Arab countries and the Arab people. They weren't fighting for a Palestinian state or a home for the Palestinian people, 
They were fighting for Arab lands and Arab states. After the Six-Day War, they accept they can't win those lands back from Israel, and they start to accept a new status quo, the idea that Israel's not going anywhere. Now, the people living in Palestine go in the opposite direction. They understand that the Arab states are not going to come and save them, so they start to work on their own, and Palestinian national movements start popping up one after another. For the first time, the Arabs that had been living in the Palestinian territory start pushing for the creation of a nation called Palestine not just for the Palestinian lands to go to the other Arab countries. They begin to push for their own country. But they have a long road ahead because in 1967, they're farther away from this goal than they've ever been. 1967 marks the beginning of the Israel occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Something that will be critical to the Palestinian Arab about this conflict for decades to come. Now, from the Israeli perspective, things could not be going better. Israel has defeated all of its neighbors in war for the second time, proving that they're a force to be reckoned with, and as a result of their victory, the Jewish state has grown four times its original size and they occupy all of historic Palestine. Many Israelis think that the quick and decisive victory over so many powerful Arab nations was a sign from God. It seemed like proof that after centuries of exile and then the Holocaust, God had kept his biblical promises to the Israelites. Their ancestors had prayed three times daily for Jerusalem, and now it was in their hands. For the first time in 2,000 years, Jews controlled the Western Wall. They could finally pray at their religious sites. And this awakens a renewed religiosity in the Jewish citizens of Israel and marks the beginning of the settler movement and a new kind of Zionism. One that's no longer about self-defense and partition, but about the messianic religious redemption of the land and the rejection of the idea of partition, or a two-state solution. This renewed religiosity starts to move Israeli civilians towards extremism. Many start moving into these new occupied territories and building homes, and when enough homes are built, they become settlements. And this is where Israel starts clashing with the international community, because these settlements are a violation of international law. And granted, I don't think international law packs much of a punch, but the consensus broadly is that developing settlements in areas that you occupy by military force is illegal. This is going to be a sticking point for many decades to follow. But the Jewish people aren't the only ones getting more religious. As Arab nationalism falls, it's replaced by Islamic fundamentalism. But Islamic fundamentalists want nothing to do with that. Fundamentalists want to see existing regimes replaced by Islamic republics that are built on Islamic law and free of foreign influence. They're very upfront that one of their primary goals is the destruction of Israel in all forms, which makes this movement particularly popular with the Palestinians. In this conflict, the Islamic fundamentalist movement will go on to be defined by the blood that it sheds and the terrorist groups that it creates. And in this conflict, the most relevant groups are Hamas in Palestine, specifically in the Gaza Strip, and Hezbollah in Lebanon. 1967 is a dark turning point in the conflict, and it marks the beginning of a new era of violence, terror, and war. In our next episode, we'll enter the era of extremism, violence, and peace. We'll be looking at the peace process and unpacking its rise and fall and all of the pivotal and heartbreaking moments that occur in between. Our next episode is not just about history. It's about bridging the gap between the past and the present. We'll be looking at extremism, 
exploring how its influence has corroded the prospects of a lasting resolution and the parallels that we can see in our country today. And as we look forward, we'll be taking a cautious look at the hazy landscape ahead and contemplating what the future might hold in this ever complex terrain of conflict and diplomacy. Before I leave you, I just wanna remind you guys that the issues that we're talking about are close to the hearts of many people. So if you have thoughts, feelings, or you just wanna talk, I wanna remind you that my inbox is always open. You can email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com and let me know what's on your mind. As always, if you like this episode, don't forget to like, rate, review, or follow this podcast wherever you're listening to it. And you know, bring it up in conversation with the next person that you talk to. Anything that helps us spread the word. That's it for me today, folks. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I hope that you're just as excited for Christmas as I am. Stay safe. I'll see you next time.